Welcome to episode five, series two of the All Things Mental Health podcast. I'm Aniska, your presenter, and today we're delighted to have Dr. Manuel Madriaga with us. Manny is, is a senior lecturer in education studies at Sheffield Hallam University. His research interests are on the process of social exclusion and inclusion related to race, ethnicity and disability. He's a sociologist of education, currently engaged in research projects with a focus on widening participation and culturally relevant teaching in higher education. Today, we're going to be talking about the importance of inclusive spaces on campuses amidst the white majority higher education space in the UK. Manny, thank you so much for joining us today. Before we delve into this topic, would you tell us a little bit more about your research in particular? First off, thank you, Aniska, for letting me be a part of this. It's, uh, it's awesome to be asked, and it's awesome to actually just to see you. I just, yeah, I just got awarded some uh, research money to investigate widening participation, which is widening access into uh, university for uh, for all students going in and, and increasing the number of students coming into university. So when I talk about widening participation, that's what it means, Out, outreach and the policies to enhance and increase more non-traditional quote-unquote students into higher education. And I'm currently examining uh, how education policy could possibly be reproducing and reflecting uh, notions of whiteness and white supremacy. And, uh, and I'm working off a, a, a theoretical framework uh, from critical race theory, which seems to be very topical at the moment, considering uh, the, the current government line on uh, critical race theory. Um, so that's what I'm currently working on at the moment. There's some other projects I am exploring as well, and that I feel quite honored to be a part of, for instance, enhancing the representation of uh, black postgraduate student researchers in universities, particularly up north here. And that is a project working alongside the Stuart Hall Foundation, which I'm, I'm so pleased to be a part of. So yeah, so, so that's some of the kind of things I'm, being, I'm, I'm a part of now at the moment in terms of research and, and practice. So delving into what we were, we were saying then, many students from ethnic minorities don't feel welcome within the mental health support sphere in higher education because there is a lack of representation, but also because the white majority mental health support sphere harbors a specific Eurocentric way of thinking that prevents it from being a global space. What are your thoughts on this, Manny? So I may go into tangents here, so I'll apologize beforehand. You're good. <laughs> Um, uh, as, as, you, as you can hear from my accent, I'm not originally from England. Um, I'm originally from, from California uh, and not necessarily California. I, I, it's settled lands, colonial settled lands of Ohlone settlement before uh, it was classified as California. So I understand that I come from a land of settler colonialism, born and raised in a land of settler colonial state. My family, my ethnicity is from the Philippines. My parents are from the Philippines, migrated in. And that's also a settler colonial country. So I, I just want to let folks know who are listening that that's, that's, my, that's my origins and that's my ethnic background as well as how I'm racialized in different global contexts. The reason why I bring up my background is that growing up in the States, you can see how... Um, 
universities are places of, of research and places of science and they're places of research excellence and academic excellence. But the question, particularly when it comes to in, in the States, is has to do with a lot, how, how do these universities come about? And, uh, and, and the argument is that I'm, I'm leaning towards, too, is that a lot of these uni universities were founded for colonial expansion. So you see universities uh, named like, for instance, Texas A&M, which stands for Texas and Agriculture, so to, to cultivate the land for that colonial imperialist expansion. Now, when I reflect on Britain and, and England, I, I, that's how I view universities, is that univ like England, although it, it, there seems to be, yeah, there seems to be a debate about uh, decolonizing the curriculum and, and, and the history, there seems to be this quite a, a push against the idea that actually the, uh, England and Britain participated in the slave trade when actually it's a country that actually benefited from the, from the uh, uh, chattel slavery uh, and, and the exploits of, of exploiting land uh, across the world. And so when, I, so when I think about, it's difficult for me to disentangle British universities from what went on during colonialism and how it created the rationale for chattel slavery, like with the with eugenics and the the understanding of what constitutes being a human, and also the the inventions that occurred through the universities, the the science to innovate, the technologies to coerce folks and and to um, extract precious minerals and resources to to bribe other regimes that they participated in. So it's difficult for me to disentangle the British university system from colonialism, which continues to exist today. In terms of well-being, it's students who are racialized and who are students of color, it's difficult to negotiate the corridors, the spaces within universities and seeing what they've been exposed to throughout their life uh, in education. When they come to university, all they see they may see is a lot of white lecturers and also more white students around them. And when I think about how racially segregated this country is, where there's a distinction between cities and, and places where it's not as urbanized as, as other places in the UK, there are black and brown students who have never been in classes or sat with white classmates before in some, in some respects. And then going into the university where all they see is whiteness in front of them, a white, another white teacher or white educator in front of them talking to them about something. And then they're the only one in the room when they used to be more of the, more folks who look like them when they came from schools and colleges. I believe that affects, I mean, affects my own well-being and my own mental health. I have experienced that students from minoritized backgrounds who were of color um, suffer from that. Uh, and I, I use the term suffer. Yeah, they suffer from that. Uh, it's not a nice experience for them. And I guess one of the things is when I think about the students that I've worked with in the past who are racially minoritized, is that they don't know who to talk to. And they are not aware that they can talk to a university administrator or support officer because they don't know that that actual stuff exists for them unless they say something. There's not many people of color in my department, um, but I do remember uh, a colleague 
who was uh, identified as female, and uh, she would get a lot of students coming to her who were female, uh, who are black, who are racially minoritized, who will always go to this particular staff member because she was black, but wouldn't go to any other lecturer or administrator or any other university personnel except for her. And and that and that that says a lot about how opening universities are when students are seeking folks that look like them uh, in order to ask questions about how they're feeling, about what's happening in their home, what's going on. And perhaps there's something to be said about how much distance we create between the university and the students and what, how the students are living. And as I say that, as I reflect upon it, I mean, I, you know, I, I'm, I'm quite I get quite emotional just just reflecting upon that because I'm seeing these individual cases that I've seen where um, where black where black and brown students just go I I just don't know like is this place for me do you know what I mean is this place for me do I really belong here um, sorry there's a lot there's a lot of stuff going on there what I just said Aniska that, that was brilliant Manny as a result of this even if institutions themselves don't focus on creating these inclusive mental health communities. I know you're aware of, you know, ethnic minority students and staff members, as you said, themselves, spontaneously creating these comfortable, safe and inclusive spaces to, to voice their concerns. And would you talk us through this, you know, a little more so, I know you sort of just, you just started, but the importance then of that in, you know, how that is actually being beneficial. And of course we would all hope for um, and, and maybe it's moving slowly towards that direction of addressing these wider institutional issues. But on the ground at the moment, it's amazing to see that these spaces are there because, as we've said, it's such an ingrained issue that these students need to find ways to navigate it in these societies. They want to engage with higher education. This is something they confront, sadly. Yeah. So yeah. it would be great to talk to you a little bit about the benefits of that and what these spaces can really then, you know, do for both staff and students really as i mentioned before about the about a university classroom and uh and i'm just going to speak from experience here um and 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 thinking about an inclusive classroom and as i said that for some students particularly from racial racial minoritized backgrounds but it could but it could be like a a classroom is a heteronormative space uh which which is not conducive for those who identify as trans right it could be a space where normalcy in terms of disability, where non-disabled people is the norm. So, so I'm thinking about not just race, but how it intersects with other uh, marginalizations and things within the classroom. But I have talked about a classroom. It could be any classroom. It doesn't necessarily have to be a university classroom, but how classrooms could perpetuate and reproduce violence. And a university classroom could be triggering, right? And we have a module called Social Justice here at the institution I work for that I've led uh, last semester. And we've talked about how not just university as as an institution, but even in our classroom could be a a place of contention. And it could be a place of violence for those who who walk in. Things that are discussed, things that are, are seen, things that are observed, things that I may say that may trigger or may perpetuate some violence that a student has experienced from the past and they relive a bit of trauma because of how they were placed in a 
ability grouping at the back of the class when they're on primary, which can I just say on the, on the side note, which I consider very ableist and very disabling um, and not very inclusive, this whole mixability grouping. Hanging out with university students this last semester and talking about that, the discussion and the mood and the tone of the class discussions, and you got to remember this is during COVID and we're doing this all online, felt a bit different. It felt given with COVID and talking about these things where a lot of students haven't left their houses, still in their flats, haven't connected physically with their, uh, with their loved ones, it's, has been difficult. But having to talk about that and how well-being and mental health was a theme throughout that module. And this module was, a, was about social justice and education. But given where we were all at, even how we started off each session, how's everyone doing? Just asking that question, we're living in the midst of COVID. Lecturer, being vulnerable to them, just saying, look, I, I'm not having a nice day. This is the learning outcomes for today for this lecture. But I just want to tell you straight up, I'm not having, it's been a hard day with the kids, da, 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 da. And exposing that kind of vulnerability, I think, creates a different tone in the room for for all involved like we're not superhuman do you know what i mean we're not <laughs> we're all got issues we all got problems that we have to, and barriers and obstacles that we face but it's, it's great that each one of us inside the room are able to identify with that and, and and be able to speak our speak our peace without having that sense of being stigmatized by what we say about ourselves it was just one of those times where I'm teaching something about this module about social class and about race. And every time we met, it was always about well-being and mental health. So that's why, like, when I was asked to participate in that conference where I initially met you, I just said, yeah, I got to do it. It's something that we all have, and it's something that we're all affected by. And it doesn't even matter if you're a, a student or even the lecturer, because if they're not good... I'm not good. And if I'm not good, they're not going to be good. And so let's just be honest about it. Yeah. And and we can work from there to uh, eliminate all the toxicity that's trying to alienate us from connecting. <laughs> you focus on teaching your students to think about education critically and how it can be a place of, of trauma and real marginalization, as you've said. How do you engage students with these ideas then in a teaching capacity? As, as you know, I'm, I work in education and we and we get students in who are undergraduates and get them to the idea of being a professional teacher, yeah, going out there. And so I, I've come across a lot of literature, uh, particularly from the States, that's kind of informed my thinking about my approach. And in, in some respects, it's kind of like for all those who are listening, and, and we, we all have been familiarized with a lot of like the basic psychology kind of theorists when we're doing A levels in psychology, like the like Maslow, and you know Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Not that I'm, I'm putting him on blast. I, I believe he actually stole that ideas from a indigenous community from the states. But anyways, I'm not going to go there. But like just thinking about students coming into a classroom are not empty vessels, yeah? Each one of us are bringing something different inside that room. And the way that we teach education or the way that some folks, some of my colleagues approach a lecture or a seminar is that they're empty vessels and they're not. They have experienced stuff that we don't know. And and much of the literature that I have been drawn to is is, is a lot of communities within inner city America where 
in order to uplift and encourage, we gotta we have to meet where the young children are at. Yeah, this is the the literature in the states, uh, particularly uh, in African American communities, Latino communities, in in inner city um, areas of the states. So my my thinking and my approach is it replicates that in a university classroom, and I you know I have the I have the blessing and the honor to teach in a university that's within a northern city that's very diverse and very culturally diverse, where a lot of the students that come into the classroom come from different areas of the city that are not from the well-off places in catchment areas where they have all the right resources that another area of the city would have. And so I have to clock that. And I also have the... So not only are students... Yeah, not only are students not empty vessels coming in, they have stories to tell that will help me as a, as a teacher to relate to them and to connect with them and to offer them the encouragement and I guess the pastoral sense of me as being a, a teacher to get them to hit those learning outcomes, to hit those assessment criteria and, and to be more relatable and connect with them in order for them to progress. Because like, it's not just about the marks, it's about like, someone cheering them on yeah and you can't you can't cheer someone off if you don't know them and creating a space where you can hear those stories that they're not value neutral beings that they have a story each one of them and is being able to connect with each one of them inside the classroom and and having i guess that awareness that I know that a lot of my students come from the Sheffield area and knowing the geography knowing the postcodes so it's, it's, there's a bit of legwork for me, but there's also a bit of legwork in trying to create a space to get students to talk about their stories and to create an environment in a, in a class that students are able to share their stories without without being stigmatized about it and not being bullied afterwards on social media. Sure, sure. No, I, I completely agree. So, Manny, I know an important philosophy for you is to survive and thrive. And how does that fit in here then, do you think? Survive and thrive. So there's that, that there's, there's two things that there's two things there. So I, f- I feel like particularly around education and just education in general, I think for minoritized students, racially racialized students, students of color, B A M E, I believe for a lot for a lot of us, education is something that we need in order to survive. But I wouldn't necessarily say that it's about thriving. So I would say for a, a lot of students that I, I have experienced teaching, I, they have come from areas of the city where they just taught to survive. The education's there for them to just survive. But I want my students to thrive. I want them to flourish. I want them to think beyond what they actually see of, of this reality because we need change to occur. So like, uh, yeah, there's a bit of, a sense of social justice. I'm driven by a sense of racial justice. Um, and the the phrase survive and thrive uh, echoes uh, e- echoes sentiments that I, I, want, I, I want to do more than survive as a, as a title of a book by Bettina Love in the States. I want to do more than survive. I want to thrive. I want to flourish. I want to bear fruit for my youngins. Do you know what I mean? I want to bear fruit for children. And those who I work with, uh, and I want them to shine. It's a great honor when you have students who graduated like three or four years ago emailing you back and telling me what's going on in their life. And and 
for those who are listening, for those students, <laughs> those students who, who left me, it's great. It's a great encouragement. And that for me is being is symbolic of thriving, of flourishing. And, uh, and that's what I think for those working in education, I, I just feel like that's something that we should be working towards, not just teaching them how to survive in this world, but how to, how to thrive in it and how to share the light with others as well. Manny, thank you so much for joining us. It was a real pleasure to have you. Um, yeah, no, uh, thank you for asking me to be a part of it. I just feel, yeah, I feel like after this, I'm going to go back to my diary and start writing stuff down, dude, for my own, <laughs> for my own reflection about like, dude, I need to sort, I need to sort myself out. <laughs> but this was, but when, when one has posed the questions that you've asked, able to reflect upon this as I was, as I was going on for this past uh, 20 minutes, it's, it's it's really encouraging and and I got a lot to think about and a lot to reflect upon, not for my own well-being but for those who I work with and and we all have it and we all want to shine and and creating the conditions for us to shine. Thank you. <laughs>